Non, c'est ce que je disais. Oui, moi, s'évader, c'est de la blague. Après tout, tout est beau. Il n'y a qu'à s'intéresser aux choses et les trouver belles. The time has come. Catherine Bigelow! This and some of the other nice things that have happened to me in the last couple of days may turn me into some sort of hopeful optimist and ruin my whole life. Spoil? <laughs> Did he spoil me? No! I remember quite clearly it was 1946 and I was four years old. My mother took me to see King Vidor's Duel in the Sun. Al film italiano Deserto Rosso di Michelangelo. Michelangelo Antonioni. Okay, welcome to episode 30 of the Phomotomy Podcast. I'm Steve Weichelfer, Deputy Editor at Phomotomy.com, and I'm going to be your host today while we investigate the notion that 1983 was the worst year in film. Woohoo! The 80s are generally considered the weakest decade, but 83, for some reason, is it is it the bottom of the pit, or is that just an easy myth? So to accept... To, to examine this topic, we brought some really big guns together. Yeah. Professor Emeritus and author Daniel Smith-Rousey. Hello. Good morning. Yay. Our resident contrarian, Rob Motto. Hi. And our boss and world cinema expert, Robin Wright. Hello, everybody. So, to get us, kick us off, get us started here, uh, let's get some context. Daniel, you're the expert. What was going on in Hollywood in the 1980s that would result in targeting that decade, and 1983 in particular, as the worst? Right. Okay, well, uh, let's talk about four factors. Uh, one was the implosion of United Artists, the studio, uh, after the fiascos of Apocalypse Now and Heaven's Gate in 79 and 80, respectively. Uh, So basically it ceased to exist as a studio, and the rest of the studios took notice. They said, oh, my God. So there was a feeling like the the experimentation of the 70s was over. We can't hand over big cash to these auteurs anymore, with exceptions. I mean, I know you're going to name George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and that they had more than proved themselves to be more than just... Uh, auteurs on the level of uh, Michael Cimino or whoever, you know. The, but the point was that, okay, that that meant that the 70s and handing over cash, big cash, to the Coppolas or whoever or the, I mean, you could name whoever you want, Brian De Palma. I mean, I don't know. You know, the feeling was, uh, and I know those, everybody I named had movies in 83, which is interesting, but the feeling was we had to tighten our belts. Um, we couldn't let things get as out of control uh, as we had, or, or supposedly. That was certainly, the, anything that was released in 83 carried that shadow of, whoa, we, we are not sure anymore. Now, what are commodities? Commodities are agricultural products, like coffee that you had for breakfast, wheat, which is used to make bread, pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich, 
Another thing, and one reason I'm really glad we're doing this podcast now, this week, or this month, or whenever it comes out, is uh, I think that the current Trump era uh, is in some ways comparable to the election of Ronald Reagan. I mean, they're not, it's not an apples to apples, but there was, you know, just like today, people are saying, filmmakers are asking themselves, well, how much do I react to, uh, to Trump? How much do I, you know, do we, do we make movies for the Trump people? Do we make movies that are against the Trump people? Do we, you know, what is exactly, what is our creative, you know, th- and I think that's an actually really fascinating conversation. I think to some degree, a lot of that conversation was also happening in 1983 with regards to Reagan. Reagan was a shock to the system for Hollywood, especially since he was from there. Uh, and they thought, okay, wow. Um, and I think, you know, War Games is an example of that to some degree. Uh, but, you know, that's just one. I mean, you, you, there, were, there was a lot of, well, what are we exactly doing? These are my grades. How can anybody get a D in home ec? If that's none of your business, can you erase this, please? No, it's too late. What are you doing? I'm changing your biology grade. No, I don't want you to do that. You're going to get me in trouble. No, nobody can find out. There, you just got to see. Now you don't have to go to summer school. Change it back. Why? They can't possibly... I said change it back. Um, A third thing uh, that I want to mention of that time is that it was a more female-friendly time than the early 70s had been. Uh, The late 70s, Carter Power, whatever you want to call it, suddenly they were like, oh, wow, we need to actually include voices of women in a way that most major movies in the early 70s had not. So... A movie, you know, more like same time next year movies, movie like Starting Over, which was uh, James L. Brooks. He had become famous because of the Mary Tyler Moore show. His first movie was 79. In 83, he would make his second movie, Terms of Endearment, which would win Best Picture, Best Actress. Uh, you know, the, the idea being that, um, you know, there was a, a more of an emphasis on female voices and we see that all, you know, Yentl, Silkwood were major movies that in 83. And I don't, I, what I mean is they were as high budgeted as almost any movie outside of Return of the Jedi and the right stuff. And I'd say that you wouldn't see today um, a movie that's in the top 10 budgets of 2018 uh, that so closely focused on uh, the Meryl Streep character or the, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, they did, they weren't doing, they, in some ways, it was a throwback to what Hollywood had been better at in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, but had given up on in the early 70s, had focused more on the Jack Nicholson's and Dustin Hoffman's and Robert De Niro's and Robert Redford's. But those people had, in you know, in that in since, had also decided to become more female-friendly. Dustin Hoffman had just put on a dress in Tootsie uh, and made Kramer versus Kramer. Robert Redford had made Ordinary People. Even Warren Beatty seemed to be ceding the stage to his sister for, uh, and Jack Nicholson helping out with Terms of Endearment. Um, and so I, there was a way in which it was like, let's get a li- let's listen to women. And so when we look back and say, oh, the 80s sucked, I sometimes wonder if that's a lot of men saying that. I mean, I'm sorry. I feel like that's male coded. One other final thing I want to say is that TV was as big. TV affected things. I mean, Return of the Jedi is the number one movie of uh, 1983, but it's only the third highest seen movie of 1983 if we're counting TV. The top two movies, the, 
the, the top three of 1983, if we're counting TV, and we kind of should, it, number three, Return of the Jedi, number two, The Day After, uh, starring, uh, you know, yes, yeah, starring Jason Robards, I mean, a, a very, very Reagan-era movie, if ever there was one, and number one, the highest-rated TV show of all time in many ways, um, the finale to the MASH you know, goodbye and farewell and amen, which is, I, I think, I actually think all three of those are great uh, for different reasons. We can talk about them. But so I think TV cast its own shadow and it works together with these other factors um, to sort of set up what 1983 was. Um, I think there was, you know, in the air, I think it's interesting that the right stuff and Terms of Endearment, which were the big year enders, are both in the astronaut program i mean they are uh and they're but they both take this kind of elegiac look at it like wow we got along back then we don't anymore which is kind of their perspective which is i think very comparable to current trump era you know like wow we used to get along but we don't and so you know i i i think a lot of things are interesting about that period but if it is a bad period and you know, I know we're going to name some movies that we do like from that period. I mean, I'll, I'll name, you know, Trading Places or all <laughs> I can name all kinds of movies. I like Fanny and Alexander from that period. But, and I know we're going to name them, and I think that's fine. But when we consider that the general trend is, is towards worse movies, that the, the average Rotten Tomato score is lower than we would like, those, I think, those four factors I laid out are a big part of it. That's all. So this, this belt tightening you mentioned... This was the same period where groups like Miramax started up. Yeah, well, they saw an opportunity. Casting their net for everything that the studios were rejecting, and they that, the payoff was huge. They saw an opportunity because they knew that uh, the studios didn't want to make those little movies anymore. Um, well, the studios were hoping that they could get by with like a lot of base hits, you know, um, these movies like Tender Mercies with Robert Duvall, uh, you know, that, whereas like the little, little movies like you're talking about, like Jim Jarmusch movies, yes, Miramax saw a way to swoop in there. They weren't the only ones, but yes, they were important then, yeah. yeah. Okay, Rob. Yeah. What does it look like from where you're sitting? 1983. Well, uh- yeah, well, when this topic got brought up, uh, you know, maybe maybe four to six weeks ago in chat, I, I just looked at the list of movies, and I couldn't believe the <laughs> lack of titles that stood out as, you know, either notable or even things I would want to watch, um, let, let alone, you know, j- just, you know, the average kind of like, oh, hey, let's check this out. So I, I had to kind of dig just to find things that you know, I either found interesting or maybe I wanted to take a, a alternate look at, like, for instance, Terms of Endearment. Um, I mean, that's a movie that people loved and it won Best Picture and, uh, you know, there, there are certainly great performances in it, but um, when I saw it, it just did not affect me in the way that, you know, uh, sort of the tearjerker ending uh, affects a lot of people. And so... Uh, I really wanted to take a look at why 1983 was, at least from my perspective, so bad. Um, so I definitely think that there is softer and more family-focused narratives um, throughout the year. Um, sort of a move away from the cynicism of the 70s. I think also on both sides of it, 1982 and 1984 were both really good years. Um, comparatively, so I also think in just retrospect, it's just like, what happened? Um and I also, you know, just studying the period, I know that there, uh, you know, certainly the rise of the agent and the studio wrestling power away from the director. Daniel talked about that a little bit. Um, 
and then the social changes of the 80s you know with reaganism i i attribute to sort of going to the smaller uh family focused movie um and i mean i don't know you have things like flash dance you have things like the outsiders and the big chill um that are just sort of uh, (laughs) but you're looking at it from a a hollywood perspective right Um, america no absolutely you know absolutely american hollywood perspective yes um, but yeah, so yeah, that's that's kind of my 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 take on it. Because there were a lot of a lot of uh, uh, foreign films. I mean, Almodovar made us started coming onto the scene back then. Um, yeah, there were uh, Truffaut. That was he made his last film. Yeah, in '83. Robin, it does feel like um, that Rob mentioned the fa- the sort of family. The family films. If you could, that that's kind of started like the late seventies, didn't it? When the seventies stopped being yes. so, and then it came into the eighties, and then we had the the Spielbergs, and that had like a fluish uh, eighty one, eighty two, and then eighty three. It's almost like it's it's almost like it's just everything we knew about the mainstream cinema just kind of paused. It doesn't doesn't you don't have to dig deep to find the sequels in this year. Just just embarrassing. It really is. I mean, it's. Smoking the Bandit three, um, there was even the Sting two Jaws, three D Porky's. <laughs> I mean the Porky's uh, two was. I mean it was it was not as good cool. as the first one. A bowl of floating. <laughs> and that's yeah, just yeah, that's just yeah, one aspect. Yeah. yeah, I mean even no, we're not going to talk too much about the Academy Awards, but that kind of reflected where they were when you look at when Gandhi and um, Chariots of Fire won. You kind of. I suppose from an American perspective, but even from a British perspective, you kind of think, well, they don't really know where they are at the minute. And this year, in terms of endearment, was like the favourite from the beginning. I think maybe the right stuff, which had all the right stuff, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but it ticked all the boxes, the right stuff. You know, that American story, the act, the ensemble, you know, up-and-coming actors. Um, I believe it's Steve's favourite of the year. Am I it is, yeah. by far. And it's a really good film. Um, and Philip Calvin wasn't nominated. Yeah, it's an outrage. <laughs> for, for direct, for direct, I think director was the, was a big surprise, but screenwriting as well. Um, I think Terms of Endearment was gonna, but Terms of Endearment belongs in that era. That film, even published eight years later, wouldn't have been as big. I think that those tearjerkers, the tackling the cancer, and all that sort of stuff. Was um, it belonged right in that year? I would say so. It's almost lucky if it had it fallen at either side. I mean, next year you get Amadeus. You know, it's completely different. I think that's where the the television uh, impact comes in that, that Daniel was talking about. Terms of Endearment is it's from somebody who was an expert in television, and it feels like he, a, te- a, te- a, exactly a very good notes. television movie. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, you've got uh, Shirley MacLaine, who finally gets a chance to shine, and probably Deborah Winger's best performance, which sort of got outshined by Shirley. Yeah. 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 
I think to me, Mr. Mom, which is one of the top ten movies of the year with Michael Keaton, maybe the most maybe the most on point, uh, on brand nineteen eighty three movie. I mean, it was a time of men realizing maybe we need to get in touch with our more feminine side, and that would change. And and, and there were exceptions, obviously. I, it's never one or the other. You know, you also had two James Bond movies at the, during the same year, which was a sort of an unusual situation of. Uh, Interesting because you had Blue Thunder, you had, but you know, you can always point to exceptions. But I think as a general thing, plus there was the the rise of the raunch comedy. You know those those post uh, like Porky's movies. You know those stupid. Um, I mean, oh, I you know where they're looking in women's showers. So this is dumb. You know, but um, there's a lot going on. You know, yeah, it's funny you say that about the the men's identity and the women sort of feminine. Because then you've got the we have to mention Barbara Streisand. And the film yeah. Gentle, which was her doing yeah. kind of the, the the opposite in a way, but um, she she like the awards. I'm gonna just quickly the awards season. They all kind of loved her. They're all bit sort of well, this this woman directs because she can direct as well as sing and everything else. And then obviously the Oscars again. They were like did, didn't yeah. even exist, um, you know. And I don't I don't feel for her with a Prince of Tides, but I do feel for her with this. Um, and she's kind of been. Presenting uh, awards since where a woman might win, uh, I don't think she'll ever get over it. But that was that was very that film stands out on its own in '83, uh, and I do think it's a good film. I was happy to see Deadpool 2 give it a, an extent shout out, but anyway, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm glad she did it as a kind of musical comedy because she doesn't look like a man. Let's be honest, you know. Um, and she was the first woman to win Best Director at the Globes as well. The nominees for Best Director Motion Picture are... Bruce Berriford for Tender Mercies. Ingmar Bergman, Fanny and Alexander. James L. Brooks for Terms of Endearment. Mike Nichols, Silkwood. And Barbara Streisand for Yentl. Peter Yates for The Dresser. The winner is Barbara Streisand. Gosh, this is really, really thrilling, because I really did not expect this, believe me. So it sounds like it was Hollywood, only Hollywood, that was doing a reset. Because <laughs> I'm going to take a deep breath, and I'm going to read all the directors, <laughs> the, directors the major directors, who yeah. released the film in 1983. Okay? Are you ready? Yeah. And a lot of them are not Hollywood, I guess, is part of the point. Most, yeah. they all... Almost oh, sorry, every sorry. one of them released outside of the studio system. Right. Go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say three cheers for Martin Scorsese and the King of Comedy, which is, to me, as good a film as he ever made. But anyway, yeah, but, but go ahead. And it's a Hollywood film, technically. But, go, but keep going. Yeah. Okay. Here they are. Godard, Bergman, Peter Weir, Fellini, Brasson, Scola, Sora, Truffaut, Lumet, Waja, Almodovar, Besson, Roig, Verhoeven, James Ivory, Scorsese, Sales, Oshima, Ballard, Tarkovsky, Peckinpah, Coppola released two, Romer, uh, Philip Hoffman, Mike Nichols, Bob Fosse, Robert Altman, and Woody Allen, all in the same year. Yeah, and a lot of those movies are pretty strong. I mean, you could definitely make a case that some of them are like side projects or whatever. Like you could say that, say, Sea League by Woody Allen is not really his top ten, but I still think it's very interesting. And that 
That's true of a lot of the ones you mentioned. Yeah, I don't think anybody's anybody's masterpiece was released that year, but uh, just to have just to have that uh, that list of people releasing, we would kill for that right now. <laughs> right, that's a great point. Well, Coppola, I mean, like for instance, Coppola, like The Outsiders, we we watched that in high school, and it it was really lame to me, <laughs> like really lame, sure. and I. I was very shocked when I found out who directed it, and I was like, "What? What? Why?" And then I and then I saw Rumblefish, which I liked a lot more recently. I, I saw it a couple months ago, um, and I, it's, I'd probably say that's one of my more favorite movies in 1983. That one, that one does feel personal. Oh. Uh, but The Outsiders, I don't know if that was just a straight adaptation from the book or, or what, you know. But that one was really like that was a very soft film. I've- I think he was just getting his bearings after the after the breakdown, practically, that he had from Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, yeah. And I actually didn't know that that... I mean, I knew that they had shooting issues, you know, on location and everything, but I didn't realize that it didn't didn't make money. Yeah, and Fosse's movie didn't make money, and Altman's movie didn't make money, and... Yeah, that was, that, that was, another, right. that was another forgotten um, film. There were also a lot of... I, I think this is an important year for comedy. I would kind of stand up... The thing is, when we go back and watch comedies, I mean, I showed Airplane to my class, which is not from 1983, and, you know, they're not laughing at anything because it's all, like, half of it's very politically incorrect, which I didn't really realize. <laughs> but let me tell you, the time when we all loved Airplane, I mean, not everybody, but, you know, when they were making those top ten uh, comedies of the, you know, like, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, I mean, everybody was chiming in to, t- you know, every, I mean, I'm talking about Hollywood stars on the on the tape of, like, you know, hired by the AFI to say how great it was. My, well, now, I don't, obviously, this isn't about Airplane. What I mean is, that whole Saturday Night Live generation, now that Lorne Michaels was gone and doing something else, were all in the middle of doing what I consider sort of interesting work. Now, John Belushi had just died, which was a shock to the system. I mean, Robin Williams talked about how that was, like, the biggest shock of his life. Um, but I'm saying that that was... But I think a lot of those guys, there was an interesting kind of Saturday Night Live-ization of comedy at the time. Uh, and there was Monty Python's The Meaning of Life also came out um, that year. So there was a lot of, I, I think, I mean, if you look around, um, you see, like, I don't know, in 1983, you see the trading places, you see uh, a few of these movies. And I think maybe they didn't all work, but I think there was a desire to be, like, kind of hip and fun. And, yeah, no, it's did Dan Aykroyd's Dr. Detroit work? No, it didn't work. But um, you know, a lot of this stuff was kind of interesting to me. I don't know. But you've got, like, uh, Woody Allen's ex-writing partner, Paul Brickman, who came out with Risky Business, which is a very smart comedy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good one. Wow, look at you know when the writing partner, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of interesting things going on. I mean, but yeah, I think I can see why it's not considered. I, I think the nostalgia factor comes back. I mean, the fact that Big the Big Chill was one of the five Best Picture nominees, I think, is symbolic to me. I mean, I loved the Big Chill, and at the time in 1983, we were running around singing, uh, you know, I heard it through the grapevine, and that was a big deal to us. But I can see why, in retrospect, you look back and you go, Wait, the story is Glenn Close can't get pregnant, so she asks her best friend, whoa, like, really, that's a movie, and they're that nostalgic about the 60s, boring. I mean, I can see why, you know, these female-friendly, softer, you know, Angora sweater movies are kind of not aging well, I don't know. I mean, I get it, but I they seemed vital at the time. And even Kevin Costner got a bounce from the big chill. Uh, right, because he's the, right. yeah. 
Sorry. <laughs> he got cut out, but he still got the bounce. Yeah, I know that's funny. To what's, what's odd to me is you have something like a Christmas story come out, which okay. is like in America is this sort of iconic um, thing because yeah. it you know plays on TV, TNT twenty four hours a day on Christmas. But um, its director Bob Clark is really best known for his. Um, like horror movies of the 70s and yeah. so it's just so bizarre to kind of see the guy who's known for Black Christmas um you know <laughs> Mar- right. Margot Kidder rest in peace um throws a whole new perspective on that leg lamp <laughs> right <laughs> oh wow okay I didn't even think of that but that's that's pretty cool <laughs> I know when I, I mean, I was, you know, a kid. We were running to like Steve Martin's movies. You know, we wanted to see The Man with Two Brains again. You know, that was like, I mean, maybe that was, maybe we were just immature, but I, I don't know. I, I also want to say about '83, the music was usually pretty interesting and good. I mean, I was looking at the top 100 of uh, on Billboard, and I don't think that, I don't think anybody's calling that the low year for music. And maybe that's partly, maybe it was sucking up all the cultural energy. I mean, it was clearly the year of. Michael Jackson, but Michael Jackson, like his, I mean, so everyone from age of three to age of 103 was listening to Thriller that year, which is fine, Um, but um, I think that rising tide also lifted other pop culture boats, at least in terms of music, you know, suddenly people were paying attention to all kinds of other people uh, that they might not have, you know, Um, so maybe that also sucked some of Hollywood's, you know, uh, patina away, maybe it didn't, I don't know. So, Robin, what were your what were your highlights of '83? You, you usually go through year, year by year. Uh, yeah, good question. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say Return of the Jedi for because I was a Star Wars kid, and although it's not as good as the other two, it, it was it's still a, a standalone, really, really entertaining film. Um, I'm going to mention the Greek film Rebetiko, which uh, Costas Ferris film, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it tells the story. It's almost like a biography. So, uh, and it's but it's set in a music in the music scene, yeah. you know, rather than it's not like a musical, you know, the way that Yento is. I'm uh, I'm kind of dying to, so I will try and find it. Yeah, I mean, because I've married into the married into Greek family as well. Uh, it's sort of ten, like a tender spot as well. But I think universally, it's it's so good because it's like you want to know about Greek music. Watch this film, and it just sort of invites you into the into the like the music scene. You don't even have to do anything. The way it's filmed, you know, really warm colours, and the music's great. And the acting's brilliant. It's it's so great. It's absolutely brilliant. My favourite film of the year. Eric, Eric Rama film as well uh, Bresson's film Najem was good very good that was his last film as well I believe 
and the documentary from Chris Marker, which I don't think was on your list. I don't think the director was on your list. Sansa Lee. Sansa yeah. Oh, which is movie. it's great. It's I don't think many people saw it in '83, but great movie. And plus, oh, yeah, that, that's my favorite. Plus, it's a documentary, and people don't have any patience for documentaries, especially back then. But I think it's a film you watch, and then I'm gonna, you know, watch it again, watch it again, get a different experience. It's so fascinating. Um, oh God! Yeah, I didn't uh, sight and sound call in 2014. Vote was named, came in third, uh, best documentary ever made. Yeah. I, I question if it is a documentary. I mean, it is and it isn't, you know, which is part of why it's on that list. Um, but yeah, Go yeah, ahead. I know what you mean because she, she's reading, she's reading the letter, and it kind of feels like an actual story is being told at times. But visually, yeah, it's more yeah. avant-garde examination of our relationship with documentary. But yes, yeah, sure, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll pick a final one, which is an Austrian film called Angst, which I'm going to write about in our. Uh, uncensored series. It's it's like a bonkers horror film. I don't know if you've seen it or heard of it. Guy comes out of prison. He's a complete nutcase, uh, and it's and he wreaks havoc on this family. And it's sort of the standard films you see in the seventies. That kind of horror film. In mm-hmm. a, you know, trapped in a house. This is there's a nutcase, but this is like really like the camera work is all over the place. Editing's all over the place, but but in a really good way. Like it's disturbing, creepy as hell. Uh, really unconventional filmmaking, and, th- and that's angst. So look that up as well because that's that's worth watching. So I mean those five, those five there. If you want to want something that's not English, those are essentials. <laughs> 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 uh, Fanny and Alexander, uh, you know. Oh, Fanny and Alexander, yeah. I mean, uh, a very uh, milder, kinder Bergman, eh? Yeah, very long, yeah. long Bergman. And long, yes. <laughs> it's not his best film, but it is nice. It's sentimental. It's child friendly. It's nice. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Rob, do you have any highlights from '83? Uh, highlights. Um, I don't know. I might. I'm. I'm going to contradict myself and probably say Scarface and Return of the Jedi here because. Whoa. <laughs> just because I mean, there are a lot of titles that I just haven't that I haven't seen personally. Um, that I definitely need to check out. I mean, I want to watch Tender Mercies um, just to see Robert, you know, uh, Robert Duvall's uh, performance. Um, I want to rewatch, uh, you know, Terms of Endearment. I want to watch a lot of the, you know, the foreign independent movies that came out uh, that'll maybe uh, that'll maybe change my mind on the year. But um, yeah, I I'm looking through. I'm just looking through the list, and there's just not. There's a lot of sequels. I mean, Twilight Zone, the movie, was a little nostalgic for me because it was interesting as a kid, but as an adult, it's it's a bit of a mess. Um, it's Yeah, it's just a year that is not... Uh, I mean, Strange Brew, the comedy. Yeah, I love that book, yeah. <laughs> so I, I like that one quite a bit, but... Um, yeah, I, I just... I cannot... Um, there's, there's not a whole lot that stands out to me, unfortunately. Rumblefish, like I, I said earlier, was pretty good. Uh... Where are you planning on putting a window? Window? There's no window. No window? What? What about the hatch? The hatch? Yeah, the hatch. We need a hatch with explosive bolts that we can open ourselves. I think there's something you do not understand. This is the final form of the capsule. No hatch. What would happen if the automatic controls went out? Backups, checks, etc. This would not happen. 
I said, what would happen if it did? The pilot would have to fly it back. This is the way it is. You know, I wonder how the press thinks hey, hey, about this. Well, everybody knows that the right stuff was my favorite because I love that. I love the the way that Kaufman was able to translate Tom Wolfe's tongue-in-cheek uh, attitude. Sure. And his very keen eye for for detail. He, what what appears as patriotism, all of a sudden you find yourself chuckling. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like down the hall and uh, and 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 what's his name? Ed Harris's. Remarkable breakthrough performance as uh, John Glenn, which was I thought was just very very funny. Hmm. Uh, other highlights for that year, I I love Bob Fosse's Star Eighty. A lot of people felt they had to take a shower after watching it. I, <laughs> I, I felt that after I saw Silkwood, maybe not. <laughs> uh, Robert Altman, who was uh, in financial trouble at the time, did a small film called Streamers, which was just a basically a film stage play, but it was I thought. It made a big impression on me. And um, Carol Ballard did Never Cry Wolf for Disney, no less. Right. And, uh, which I thought was very good. Well, I think you look, the right stuff didn't really do that well, unfortunately. I think it barely made back its budget. Another one I would recommend is uh, Roger Spottiswood's Under Fire. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Solid. Uh, another, that was a, another Ed Harris. He seemed to poke up in three films that year. All of a sudden, he plays a mercenary, but it's about uh, journalism and revolution and that sort of thing. And I think it, the storyline puts the uh, the film that came out a couple of years later, what Salvador, puts it to yeah. shame. Right, okay. and it also has a fantastic score. That's a solid recommendation. But I I, I want to give Rob some credit that he's right that when you look at the entire list, it's not there's not a lot of low hanging fruit. You kind of have to find the good ones, you know. If and Rob, if you haven't seen Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, you're missing life. I mean, that's <laughs> you don't know the meaning of life. You have to wait till the end. Ah, good afternoon, sir. And how are we today? Better, better, better get a bucket. I'm gonna throw up. Uh, Gaston, a bucket for That just brought up in my head uh, the reason Rob can't find anything. These films that we like so much, they were made outside of the studio system. They did not get the publicity, and they're not on record. Right. We'll go looking for them. You have to know what you're looking for to find them. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that, the, the angst, the film I mentioned, was actually banned in several places because it's, you know, it's like not video nasty, but it's of that realm. Mm-hmm. And the, the others, you probably can't, you probably never far mentioned. I mean, Rebetico, it's almost impossible to find it, to stream. I've actually bought the DVD now, but you can't expect everybody to do that when they want to, you know, stream films. Rob, have you seen Silkwood? I have not, no. Okay. Because if, if Meryl hadn't won the year before for Sophie's Choice, that would have been a slam dunk. You know, they're not going to give her three Oscars in four years, because that's a unprecedented but they would but you know like th- that she's incredible as Karen Silkwood you will not regret seeing that movie I mean it's a it's a ter- I, right guy Rob and Steve back me up yes yes yeah, yeah it's yeah. good yeah yeah oh. and you had films like Educating Rita and yeah. The Hunger I mean very strong female films yeah The Hunger is it's hard to imagine them making that today with Catherine Deneuve Susan Sarandon and David Bowie in a vampire three way I don't I mean that's worth <laughs> watching oh, but it is I mean come on they wouldn't make that today but it's that's fine well, it's, it's and a little it's film funny. called uh, Heart Like a Wheel about the rich 
driver, Bonnie Bedelia. That movie was, uh, you mentioned Heart Like a Wheel. Uh, Bruce Willis later said that the reason he, he begged uh, Fox to cast Bonnie Bedelia as his wife in Die Hard was because of that film. He said, um, I need somebody who can go toe-to-toe. I don't want just some bottle blonde model to be my wife in that movie. That, wouldn't, that won't make the story is strong. You need somebody like a Bonnie Bedelia and heart like a wheel. Um, yeah, and you know, and that, that's why they got her. So yeah, and that's a fine film too about racing, women racers. No, but we. I was talking with B uh, a few days ago, and she was watching The Hunger, and she was like, "Oh, it's basically season five of American Horror Story." <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of there are there are a lot of forgettable films from 1983. I can I mean DC Cab is bad. Yes, <laughs> there's a lot of that generation of those bad teen movies mm-hmm. uh, and bad you know kind of Porky's Two kind of films that are yeah they're bad they're, they're bad. Well, they're so bad. Well, yeah, my perspective is coming from honestly from a Hollywood studio you know because I'm I'm you know I'm biased because I love the 70s so much, so I look at the 80s, especially especially a year like 1983, where there's no, there are, there are no, like, real notable, like, Hollywood hits in terms of, like, what, what my interests are, and so it's, yeah, it is a little limited in that I'm, I'm really looking at it from that point of view. Um, even, the, even the Hollywood directors that had releases that year, they either had, they were smaller films, or they just, uh, you know, they, they aren't on the scale of their other more notable movies. So I think it's honestly just coming from that perspective. There was also a film in the theaters, a small film with Jane Alexander called Testament. Right. I like that. Oh, yeah. Nice. I've seen that one. Are are there other movies that we need to mention? We haven't talked about the Stephen King, uh, like Cujo, Christine, Dead Zone, Twilight Zone. I don't know, whatever. There was a lot of Stephen Kinginess at the time. As as uh, as the the makers of the Duffer Brothers, the makers of the Stranger Things, would be the first to tell you there was a lot of Stephen Kinginess in 1983. Uh, maybe not all of that holds up that well. You know, maybe the best of his stuff had already been made. Maybe that was part of the problem. We have to admit that there were a lot of misfires, uh, but also a lot of stuff worth saving that was good. <laughs> there was there were some attitudes that were good, like the focus on women, but there yeah, were a yeah. lot of uh, focus on matinee. Type films, comedy, you know, gross-out comedies, uh, horror movies, sequels, yeah, sequel, sequels, yes, sequels. Hollywood I did not. Have- I started hating the sequel. Yeah. yeah, I don't. You know, they didn't have the whole blockbuster down to a science yet, and in some ways that's good, and in some ways it's terrible. You know, they didn't have, they didn't know as much. They did, you know, they didn't have five Return of the Jedi's and the Hopper that they could figure out to release, and they were instead trying little base hits, and you know, maybe some of those are good, some of those aren't. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Return of the Jedi, hugely disappointed because I loved uh, Empire Strikes Back. Hey, that first 40 minutes is great, but, uh, you know, the Ewoks, I'm not here to defend Ewoks. (laughs) Freeze! (gasps) Come on, get out! Go get your ride and take her back to base. Yes, sir. What the? See, it's funny. I didn't have any of that background information, and Return of the Jedi was actually a 
really entertaining for me growing up. I actually, growing up, it was probably the second, uh, actually, it was probably my favorite Star Wars movie for a while. So it, yeah, it but was really odd because I, I had none of that background info. How old were you when you saw it? Oh, I mean, maybe four or five. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm glad it was working for kids. Yeah. Like, I really am. <laughs> right. I think twice about the Ewoks. But it's funny how Return of the Jedi closed out the Star Wars um, chapter this year, of all years. You know, it's, it's weird how films were released a year before or after, how things could have been slightly different. You know, Spielberg had just come off two massive films and then took a year off. But it's almost like everybody everybody did. And then it didn't get much better, to be fair, if we look at the 80s. But mm-hmm. I know when I did the poll, I said, what was the worst decade of the 80s? And you, you had no idea that we were going to do this podcast <laughs> back then. <laughs> but I think 87 was like a frontrunner for a while. And then you all started yeah. looking at 83. Because I don't think 87 is anywhere near as bad as this. I think <laughs> 87 has... I mean, I can probably think of 10 films now that are better than a lot of the films we've discussed today, you know, obviously, you know, George yeah, Lucas. Uh, that was the last Emperor year, right? Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. Moonstruck and... Broadcast News is one of my all-time favorite movies, and, and I will not hear anyone be smirked. Me and Sasha Stone will defend, and Ryan Adams will, will... We will form a united front against anybody trying to mess with that movie. It's a fantastic movie. You might on a bad day make me say okay terms of endearment is too sentimental but broadcast news that i wouldn't change a frame but anyway hey, we're here to talk about 83 the, the, the okay yeah i was gonna say before we go back to 83 <laughs> princess bride robocop oh, yeah. i mean yeah. come on predator <laughs> yeah empire of the sun full metal jacket which I, I i will defend i don't care what anyone says i like <laughs> again yeah. i think with 83 i think i mean one of the things i just want to finish by saying is i i think that the culture had moved to other pl- i think culture was in tv was in video games was in music and mm-hmm. you know the best things and and i think that maybe hollywood was sort of like catching its breath or trying to learn from those i yeah and you have the tv eyes uh, you know, whatever, like Eddie Murphy's career, everybody was watching like Delirious and Trading Places that year. I mean, meaning, hmm. so you can argue that, yeah, it was a more, I don't know, TVized thing. Maybe they were trying to figure out how to best, you know, that it's very true that music, um, you know, 83 was definitely the time when Hollywood, much different from the 60s, was like, oh, wait, how do we get a, a flash dance, what a feeling, into our movies? And when you watch it in a, a movie from 83, you're like, it's so awkwardly stitched on. Like, they're trying to get some hit movie. They're like, well, we don't have an Eye of the Tiger for this movie. What are we going to do? Like, yeah. So they'll stitch in some half-done film from the... half-done song from the Psychedelic Furs, and you'll be like, ah, this doesn't work. But, you know, they... You know, they thought it would, and they saw these other movies where it had worked perfectly, and so I think that but they never do that anymore. Now, that really dates 83. You don't see that. You know, if you watch a 2018 movie, you never, I mean, and so usually that's good. Mostly it's good not to try to stitch in a Jay-Z or a Beyonce song, but occasionally when it did work, like an Eye of the Tiger or a Flashdance, uh, What a Feeling Maniac or whatever, that was, those were great moments in movies. It was just kind of hard to get them together, you know? Yeah, then, yeah. yeah, I mean, not everything's going to be The Graduate and, um, you know, right. 
the sound yeah. of silence, but yeah. No, no, that and that's a trend that you mentioned the watershed. That was the one that mm-hmm. changed it. Before that, Hollywood was barely even trying to put pop songs in movies, um, right. but that was the one, right? But by eight, you see it a lot in '83. You see, I mean, if you watch enough of these movies, you see, oh, they're trying and it's not working. You know, mm-hmm. so like, um, think, like, you see it a lot in the '80s. Full stop. Yeah. And then I, I do want to mention real quick that movie Bad Boys with Sean yeah. Penn and um, yeah. sure <laughs> and. Yeah, Sean Penn and um, Clancy Brown from Shawshank Redemption. Sure. Um, I, to me, that was my uh, John Hughes 1980s movie. Sure. It was sort of my Outsiders. Um, yeah. It was just a kind of a grittier, um, but, but I feel like it had sort of the same uh, or similar lessons in it uh, as those movies did. And uh, I really liked that movie. I, I checked it out a few weeks ago, and I was like, yeah, this is this is much more on my level of kind of what I'd be looking for in that type of movie, but... And uh, but, uh, the obviously the Flashdance song won won the Oscar. Be do you know who presented the song song award? I do not. Ooh, who was it? The Michael Jackson. Now is the time to learn who the winner is for best song. And to tell you, here's the sensational young Yale student and star of Flashdance, who single-handedly made torn sweatshirts into high fashion. It was Jennifer Bales. I mean, oh, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I, I wonder what this is going to be. <laughs> oh, right. I see what you mean. The fix was in, obviously. That's yeah. Funny. But What's... you see, Flashdance, I mean, I don't know. You know, that was at least so working class, and Jennifer Beals was breaking barriers for women and people of color. I don't know. I mean, I, I, what can I say? I, they don't make them like that anymore. And it was in the number three movie of the year. I mean, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think that, well, yeah, whatever. What are you going to do? I mean, it's not a perfect <laughs> movie. But, well, I do, th- you know, I'm glad Rob brought up uh, brought up MTV because I think that's another force that Hollywood was thinking about and trying to reckon with. Uh, when you teach a movie history class, you're taught that Flashdance is like Adrian Lin was the first to capture the MTV energy for a new generation, uh, you know, with that movie. And uh, I, yeah, maybe. Um, but I think, yes, Hollywood was probably thinking, okay, music videos, these seem interesting. Can we make these in movies? Can we uh, change the credit sequence at least or do something to make it a little more interesting, more flashy edits, you know, whatever. And maybe they were thinking about it. I, I don't know. You know, Look maybe. at the importance music played in the big chill. Yeah. yeah. It was the trigger for the whole movie. Yeah. That soundtrack. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, the movie was the music at that point. Yeah, and it's practically a musical. It's a nostalgic musical almost, you know. It's almost like Grease or something. But, you know, about mature 30-something. <laughs> Back with regret. Dancing around the kitchen. Oh, absolutely. No, that's a big part of it, absolutely. I don't know. I was listening to the Big Chill soundtrack throughout the 80s. I guess I suck because, uh, I don't know, I liked all those songs. Uh, but anyway, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so does anybody have anything else to say about 83 I think, we're, I think we wrapped it up Steve you, rock, you rocked this thing Steve yeah okay I just want to remind everybody that uh, to check out the articles on our 10 days of Coen Brothers there's some good stuff there and nobody has read mine on Hail Caesar just like nobody went to see the movie <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you you're missing something and then watch for our recap of the 1983 films uh I don't know how many how many do we have, Robin? We have at least a dozen that are coming, don't we? Four yeah, years? I mean, we've got a few. Yeah, there's a, there's a you know the list of films that is better than what we've discussed today. So you know, <laughs> eighty three will make a comeback in the in written form. And then, then you wonderful people out there can make up your minds whether it was the worst year or not, yeah. or even if such a label should exist. <laughs> <laughs> 
That too. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, you, Steve. Great Thank job. Thank you. Take your passion.